The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. If I sound slightly different this week, it's because I'm coming to you from a slightly different location. I am at a conference in Orlando, Florida, which means I am delivering you the Break the Business goodness from a conference center hotel room. And I will say this about conference center hotel rooms, all right? If you're trying to do a podcast or radio show or maybe record an album or something, hotel rooms, underrated acoustics. I have it on good authority from multiple top-tier recording artists that I have worked with that they have actually laid down vocals of album tracks in hotel rooms because with the bed and the furniture and the you know carpeting and everything, you get a lot of insulation and, and you can record some pretty high-quality audio in a place that you wouldn't expect, which is right here in this hotel room. What a lot of hotel rooms don't have, though, viewers and listeners, is great internet. So at any moment, if this whole stream falls apart, uh, my sincerest apologies. But if that does happen, I have left the show in the care of a uh, second person with me here, our co-host this week, always happy to have him on, musician, investor, frontman for Gideon King and City Blog, Gideon King joining us. Hello, Gideon. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. I love that when I had put out to the co-host that we were going to do sort of a Halloween-themed episode this week, you jumped at it. Um, are you a Halloween fan? Like, is this a holiday that you embrace in the King household? I mean, I think that this is more of a therapeutic show for me to the extent that Halloween scares me, which it does almost every part of Halloween. I'm sort of, you know, I'm taking it head on here as I'm, I'm, I'm facing my fears. I'm getting back on the horse after after falling off. If, if you know, Like an immersion yeah, therapy type thing. Yeah, totally. That's what I'm doing here right now, actually. Yeah. Well, now I need to explore the roots of this. We have a lot of things to talk about on the entertainment industry side, empowering indie creators. But right now, I think all of us just want to get to the roots of this particular psychosis of yours. What is it about Halloween? Obviously, it's a scary holiday, but what makes it unusually scary for you, Gideon King? So, um, first of all, the movie Halloween is forever violently etched in my psychology and you know people were hacking each other to death so that's that's fairly unpleasant um and also you know new york city on halloween scares me when you can't you can't see people's faces in new york city and everyone's insane to begin with anyway because it's new york city it, it it has that um movie the purge kind of feeling like i feel like at any moment the purge could happen and so as someone who seeks not to be a victim of um, horrible crime. Um, I just, you know, I just as soon get Halloween over with, frankly. And this is, yeah, like you said, it's my immersion therapy. So thanks. Send me well, your bill. We're fully bringing you into it here. Well, I'm not the only one who is dis dispensing with the therapy this week uh, to fully give you the Halloween experience and to get you ready for a holiday that I love. 
We are going to be joined by a Halloween staple here on Break the Business. I'm so excited to bring him back. Evan Kid Bogart is joining us. Now, I believe Evan Kid Bogart and our Halloween tradition with him predates you, Gideon. So let me tell you a little bit about this particular gentleman, because it's one of the most fascinating stories in music that I've come across. Okay, Evan Kid Bogart, if you Google him, you're going to find that he's one of the most celebrated, prolific songwriters in pop music. SOS by Rihanna, he was a co-writer on that. Halo by Beyonce, he was a co-writer on that. The man has Grammy Awards on his mantle. He is a very sought-after, incredible pop songwriter. And he could do all sorts of things with that fame, right? But what he has done uh, to channel this fame is he transfers it into a Halloween project that him and this and his uh, his fellow about a handful of other Grammy winning songwriters got together and form a group called Lovecraft that make Halloween music and every Halloween they put out a new album of Halloween songs and this is what they want to do for fun so it's on you know 11 months out of the year we're writing hits for Beyonce but in October when it's the spooky season we want to make Halloween music so naturally at Break the Business, we celebrate this. And so we have Evan on to talk to him, not about writing music for Beyonce and Rihanna, but about Halloween and his Halloween group Lovecraft. And I'm excited that you get to meet him, and hopefully he won't be too scary for you. No, I'm, I think he'll – I'm scared a little, but I'll be fine. I'll be fine. You'll hide it well. You're, you've yeah, always, you're, you're, you're a trooper. Don't worry about little old me, Ryan. I'll be fine. You were telling me before the show, Gideon, that you've actually seen ghosts in your life. All right. So before this becomes the full ridicule Gideon show, let me just explain. Um, I was driving back from college. It was two in the morning. I was driving my Ford Bronco 2, 1989 Ford Bronco 2. And I looked to my right. And whether you believe me or not, it doesn't really matter because it happened. And I saw my parents. Now, here's the weird thing. Ghosts are supposed to be dead people. That I understand. But my parents at the time were alive. Um, and uh, it was my mother and my father driving to, to, the, to the right of me on Highway 80 in the Midwest in a, uh, I think it was a Toyota Camry. And I waved to them and they waved back. And um, I have no history of severe mental illness. I'm not delusional. And I don't see things or hear voices. But I'm telling you, it was my mother and my father on Highway 80. And I was, you know, I was driving back from college and you know, that's what happened. And th those are the, what is it? Those are the facts and I'm sticking by them or whatever the expression is. But again, to your point, which you made, not me, which is a completely valid one that seems to refute the ghost story. Right. If your parents were still with you, those can't be ghosts. A, a well, hallucination, perhaps? No, I don't think so, although I was certain you were going to suggest that. But no, no, I, what, what I think it was is maybe I was driving and there was some kind of parallel universe next to me um, taking place, if you will. It's probably best to get off this topic because, um, because like in the end, most people will probably think I'm insane. And, you know, I'm really not that insane. No more insane than the average insane person, pretty much. I mean, look, you're, you will you will face no ridicule from me. I try to keep an open oh, mind yeah. on things. And I, I think I, I might find more credence to the possibility that perhaps you were seeing some kind of doorway to an alternate universe, right? Like all these multiverse movies that are coming out lately, I think that's – I think right. more of us are more inclined to accept that as a possibility. Either way, Lauren – we need to stop everything here. Did I see in the chat that our guest, Evan Kid Bogart, says that he has seen ghosts? And has a photo. 
Really? A, he, a, a ghost photo? That's what it photo? says in the chat. I'm just saying. I don't All know. Right. <laughs> Producer Lauren, you have an important assignment here, okay? Because <laughs> you're talking to him right now. I need you to get that ghost photo so that we can uh, analyze it. I mean, we're gonna, whatever we can do to scare the hell out of Gideon King this week is... <laughs> but like, you can't, you can't just say I have a photo of a ghost and not show us the photo. <laughs> Picture it didn't happen. This is a huge development. This misery loves company. Okay. And he just so, wants to get on center. He's like, come on, let me come out. I don't think I've ever you. been excited for a guest ever. <laughs> All right. Well, He's the I, best guest. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah, he, yeah. Evan's the best. So Lauren, Lauren's going to, Lauren's going to chase that photo down for us. And in the meantime, um, I want to talk to you, Gideon, about something that is just as spooky as the spookiest ghosts in the world entertainment lawyers bum 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 um we we are a frightening bunch but we are often a necessary evil for creative professionals in the industry and when if i were to make sort of my mount rushmore gideon of entertainment lawyers like who are the first four faces i think of when i think of great entertainment lawyers i'm telling you all four of the faces on my mountain are donald passman yeah um, so th this man is a legend in the field. He's the reason why I am where I am today, because the moment I was interested in learning more about the entertainment industry and about entertainment law, when I was in high school, the very first book that I read was all you need to know about the music business by Donald Passman. And it was life changing for me because it took this very complicated concept of the music industry and made it simple to understand, laid everything out so that even like a dumb high school kid like me could understand it and just got me into the beginning of this journey in the music industry. And I'm just one of many stories like that. Lots of people have read this book and it was their entrance into the music business. And so it is great for me to read that um, over the years that Donald Passman's continued to update this book. It's now in its 11th edition. So the book is changing as the industry is changing because off, obviously the book when it was written back in the nineties is a very different book than if you were writing a book about how to make it in the music industry today. And so, uh, Donald Passman was interviewed by billboard this past week, talked about the new book, uh, really, really great insights. But before we talk about some of the insights from that interview that I think are really powerful, uh, I think you have some familiarity with Donald Passman, right? Like just, I mean, for, for being a music person and a business person, I would imagine you've come across this individual in your life as well. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a legend. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, tr truly a legend. And I feel like you and he Gideon are kindred spirits because as I was reading the interview in billboard, he was saying a lot of things that you've either said to me on this show before in some version or in one of our you know late night email sessions or calls, you know, we've had this same discussion before. But right at the beginning of the interview, I noticed that Passman was talking about the changes in how the and how record labels have approached uh scouting artists, right? If you were to read Donald Passman's book back in the 1990s, he talked about how the way that artists got the attention of labels as an unknown artist would get an entertainment lawyer to shop the demo, right? An artist makes a demo, the entertainment lawyer shops it to a label. And if the label thinks that that artist has potential, they sign them to a demo deal. They get the A&R team and the artist development team working with that artist. And you build that artist up from zero and try to make them into a hit making superstar. 
And that's obviously not the model that exists anymore. Yeah. And Passman talks about that in his latest version of the book. And in the interview with Billboard, he had this quote that I think talks about the latest trend in the way labels approach artist development. And I know you've said this same sentiment before, but I'll read it right from the article. Quote, um, labels are chasing artists with followings now. But the downside is that you get people who have a billion streams but have never played in front of a live audience. I'm exaggerating, but they don't have years on the road of developing their chops and don't have a show. Maybe they've only got a few songs. And how poignant is that, right? In the old days, uh, labels would go after artists who could know how to work a stage, know how to play live, know how to perform in front of others. And now it's just, do they have lots of followers? Do they have a song that's popular on TikTok? But they don't necessarily know <laughs> how to command a, a live show. I mean, it, it's also about the technology. I mean, basically what's taken place, it's exactly what Passman is talking about. But there's a kind of reverse engineering that takes place artistically. Someone has a big following on TikTok. I just, I just had dinner with two young women, actually, and a bunch of other people. And each one of them had 10 million uh, followers on TikTok. And each had over 9 million subscribers on YouTube. Those are real numbers. And some of the people that were at that dinner were in the process of monetizing them and turning them into artists, essentially stepping into the shoes of being a liberal. So there's this reverse engineering. It's first this person, this entity, this social media um particle has to have a certain energy to it um followers and 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 a certain vibe and then the record label looks at, at music and this may be a, a bit of hyperbole but the record label almost looks at music as a sort of doable afterthought um where they say well let's just get a song out from this person okay um and they get a few producers in a room and they have ableton and they have pro tools and they have you know uh, some toys auto-tune and and they have auto tune, hell yeah. And so the the music is 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 sort of a um a, a spin-off from this comet heading towards Earth, this social media comet heading towards Earth. And it's super sad, actually. It's a, it's to me, it's like a giant it's it's where we are and it's maybe where we're going. So I'm not gonna sit sit here and, and, and cry over spilt musical milk, but um it's it's one of the most if it's so, if it's supposed to be about music, it's just not. Now, of course, eventually these people have to be lastingly talented and be able to 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 repeat the act of making decent pieces of music. Most are not. But let's face it: if you have someone with ten million TikTok followers and you release a tune, that person, amongst the hundred thousand people that are going to release a song on Spotify that day, they're the ones most likely to get five hundred thousand streams in the following weeks. And a couple playlists, a couple editorial playlists. So it's totally bizarre. It's totally different than it used to be. Well, and a consequence of that, though, is if you take an artist who's got a huge following and they got a song that's popular on TikTok now, but they don't have stage presence, they don't know how to run a tour, they don't know how to build a lasting fan base, record labels are just going to create a situation where they're just churning out flavors of the month but they don't get the lasting superstar that a record label needs to survive long term and we're seeing that in in you know statistically you know, donald passman talks about in the interview where uh there are fewer and fewer artists who make the billboard hot 100 in other words it's the same artists that are in the hot 100 we're not seeing new entrants into the hot 100 because it's all the old same superstars from when i was in college 
and you know none of the new ones are breaking out and they're having successful careers. They're getting a little bit of success for a short period of time, but once their 15 minutes of fame are up, they they don't have lasting staying power, and so you just end up with just this this churn of you know whoever's popular on TikTok that week, and they get a record deal, but we're not creating lasting superstars that really contribute to the culture musically. But there's one phenomenon that kind of militates against that. And I had this discussion with my manager who manages some pretty big acts. Okay. Not Taylor Swift, but people are putting five to 10,000 people in a room nightly. And I said, well, look, we were talking about a specific artist. And I said, listen, she stinks live. Like she just stinks. I mean, she's like starting again, in the middle of songs. She's horrible. And he sort of looked at me and said, well, you just completely don't get it. Do you? And I said, well, educate you know enlighten me and he said the fact that she has all these followers and the fact that she's playing her first few shows and they're incredibly unprofessional is endearing and relatable authentic and and, and authentic right in quotes or not in quotes but it's (laughs) real okay and he said people love that and it's the it's kind of the conflation of their social media presence and humanity with the music and that kind of conflation forgives the lack of professional kind of presentation on the music side so i know what you're saying but i know what he's saying too now that is a really good point and um the the you know new media of tiktok and youtube and things like that right um is it doesn't reward polish it doesn't reward something that looks too highly budget right people want authentic stuff people want stuff that looks like stuff that was just made in your bedroom even though a lot of times those videos that look like they were made authentically and cheaply and in somebody's bedroom there's a lot of money and time and editing and team that goes into creating that work but it still has to look like it was made by one person because that's what the audience wants they want that authenticity but that's that's a really good point gideon so The other thing that Donald was talking about in the article that really spoke to me was how record deals are changing as the industry is evolving and as technology is evolving. And, and it's true. And even, even, you know, I've not been practicing nearly as long as Donald Passman has. He's probably got three times as much experience as I do, if not four times as much. Uh, He's been in the game a while, but even in my time, like the things that I look for in a record deal five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago is very different than the stuff that's in a record deal today. And uh, and even in like the stuff where I, a lot of things I wrote about in, in my book, Break the Business, which talks all about the dangers of record deals, I spend chapters on contractual terms that are dangerous, but honestly today aren't really a big deal because record deals don't really cover them anymore. For example, and going back to Passman's interview, he talks about, for example, one of the things that used to be like a very crappy term in record deals was um, you know an artist would get a royalty on a record sale but they would always put stupid deductions in the record deal to take royalties away from artists right they would say well you get a 15 percent royalty artist but we're going to take a 10 percent of the sale price uh, from your royalty for packaging because we know you're not going to get a royalty on the packaging or you know we need to take out 10 percent for breakage you know a certain number of the records are going to break in the store and so we have to compensate for that and, you know, those things would make artist side entertainment lawyers crazy because like you, know, you, you, you'd be passing the risk of that onto an artist and, you know, 10% of the records aren't breaking in the record store. It was just, an, it was just the labels trying to steal sure. money from artists, right. but you know, it's 2023. 
Nobody's buying records in record stores, although vinyl is making a comeback. And so record deals are changing. Artists, side entertainment lawyers, we don't care as much about those deductions that are screwing artists out of money because it's not where artists are making money anymore. Another big one that we used to tear our hair out over uh, as artists, side entertainment lawyers were what are called controlled composition clauses, where uh, the label would say, Okay, you know, for an art for a for a label artist who also wrote their own songs, the label would say, "Okay, we normally have to pay a mechanical royalty to you as the songwriter to make records with your music, but because we own you as the label, we're going to make you force we're, we're going to force you to give us a cheaper license than if we were if you were just a third party songwriter out into the world." And you know, we entertainment lawyers like me used to fight clauses like that, but now it's 2023. Most music is streamed, and those mechanical royalties are paid by the streaming service, not by the label anymore. And so we don't fight as hard on those clauses anymore. And so it's a, it's just a huge mind shift for us and for the things that we used to think were horrific parts of, enter, of record deals that are completely different. But here's the one thing that Donald Passman talks about where labels have changed their approach, and it's something that we as artist-side entertainment lawyers have to fight over and uh, we have Taylor Swift to, to thank for this, of all people, and that is re-recording restrictions. So in the old days, record deals used to say, um, you're going to record this song for us, the label, and you have to agree that you're not allowed to re-record this song with anybody else for a period of time, usually five years or something. And that usually protected the label because you don't want that artist, you know, recording it a, a year later. And then all of a sudden the one they recorded for you is worthless now. And then re but recently we had this issue with Taylor Swift where um, she lost all of her big machine masters when she left that label. And so to basically reclaim her power back from her old label, she waited until that five year restriction ran out in her original record deal and is now re-recording her entire catalog, and now her new recordings are more popular, and so those big machine recordings from the old days are becoming worthless. So now every record label doesn't want to be the next big machine, and so now every record deal today has very strict re-recording restrictions in them. Some will say you can never re-record this, or it's 10 years before you can re-record this, or 20 years, because they don't want what happened to Taylor, to Big Machine with Taylor Swift happen to them it's uh, it's it's changing things crazy which is fascinating because the truth is there's more there's more technology for re-recording there's more technologies for re remixing and so yeah. just as they're tightening the reins the profusion of these types of re-recordings is both more possible and just plain out voluminous man it's just everywhere i mean i have I have people doing remixes of our tunes all the time. Yeah. Now that's not necessarily a re-recording. Okay. It's a slightly different legal concept and musical concept, but it's, it's related. It's related. Well, it is related in the sense that, yeah, one of the, one of the things, the reasons why labels weren't worried about re-recording in the old days is because, you know, re-recording an album or a tracks from an album would have been very expensive, right? Back in the old days, uh, ironically, it was more expensive to record a master in the old days because you had to go to a professional studio and hire a team and it could be 20, 30, $50,000 to re to record a master. But now in 2023 with the proliferation of technology that we have, you can record a pretty terrific master in your bedroom for nothing. And so labels know that it's much easier to re-record music. And so they have to have even stricter re-recording clauses. Um, here's one other thing from the Passman article that I actually wanted to get your perspective on as an investor, because maybe you've come across some of these in your life. 
uh, is Donald Passman had a lot to say about the rising trend of catalog sales of legacy artists selling their catalogs, usually to uh, investment firms that would buy all of an artist's copyrights and then own it as an investment vehicle, almost like a real estate investment trust, except with copyrights. And then they could maybe sell pieces of that company that owns all those copyrights on the market, maybe sell them as bonds or things like that. And um, th these are becoming very popular now. And a lot of artists are trying to sell their catalogs as a way to kind of make a big lump sum rather than wait for their money to trickle in over time as royalties. But Passman is one of the first voices I've heard that said that he's not a fan of these rising catalog sales, this trend of rising catalog sales, and thinks that they're not great for artists. Uh, here's a quote from the article I thought was pretty powerful. Quote, historically, everybody who has sold their catalog has regretted it. The Beatles catalog sold to Michael Jackson for $47 million. It's probably worth a billion dollars today. There's people over the years who have sold their royalty streams, and with changes in technology, they would have made almost as much every year than they than it would have made them had they sold it for, or at least two or three years worth. Um, and so, you know, somebody like you, career investor, you've probably come across some of these in your life. W what are your thoughts on this uh, rising trend? Do you think these tend to be good investments for artists? This last week, um, I had someone in my office pitching me on getting together with him and buying certain catalogs in a way. But if you go deep on this, what Passman is saying both factually and intuitively is generally totally spot on. Because here's yeah. the thing, Ryan, if you're an oil rig in the middle of Oklahoma and you're going up and down and pumping oil, and I come to you and I say, hey, dude, I'll give you $865,000 for that one rig in your backyard in Oklahoma. And you haven't seen a lump sum of $865,000 in your entire life. The sheer number, the magnitude of the number blows away your reason. And so, and so what I know as the buyer is that the present value is not to start to get into to, to finance, but I know that the recurring revenue in a growing industry, which oil isn't, but music is, I know that that 800, the present value, that $865,000 is undervaluing all of the future value of your payments discounted to present value. Let's put those concepts away. But basically what I'm really saying is that these artists are sort of, not all of them, but many are in a wide-eyed way sort of being blown away by the number and actually abandoning sound corporate finance, sound present values, internal rates of returns, multiples on invested capital, all of the words that artists should understand or concepts that artists should understand but often don't because you can't know everything. So um, they are underselling in a growing market what they have. Sometimes the exigencies of their life are the exigencies of their life and they need the money. And, and in that respect, it's a service. Okay. And, and some should be grateful for that, for that faucet of liquidity that gets turned on to maybe rescue them from certain predicaments that they're in in life. But for the most part, if you put a, 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 a smart kid who went to, you know, NYU business school and he did the present values and the internal rates of return, he would come running in your office and say, Oh, this is a great buy. The artist is getting screwed. Um, and so, there are now 
evolving twists to how they're being bought. Some buyers are saying we're the kinder, gentler buyer. We're not buying ownership. We're just buying a cash flow stream and that they get the overage. They have more control. And those are steps towards a, a more equitable or a more fair arrangement. But for the most part, you're selling your oil rig and the, and the money that it's pumping out too cheaply because it will pump oil for longer than you think. And the demand for that oil, just to extend this silly analogy, the demand for that oil, okay, will be greater than you anticipate, given that the compound annual growth rate of the music industry itself suggests that your music, your oil rig will have more uses, sink and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you get my drift. I do. And I think the only group, and Passman noted this in the interview, where it might make some sense uh, to take a deal like this, even if, as you noted, the present value um, isn't, you know, anywhere near what you would, you know, the present value of your future royalty streams would be much higher than what you'd get as a lump sum from an investor. I, um, but he said one group that it might apply to where it might be a good play is artists who are towards the end of their life um, and um, don't trust their heirs to be able to manage those copyrights and manage that catalog effectively, or they're running into a potential estate tax issue where, you know, they're, you know, they're going to need that lump sum for their heirs to be able to pay the estate tax. So maybe in those kind of end of life scenarios, you're willing to take a huge haircut on the value of your catalog for a lump sum. But I mean, it's, it's, it's basic finance, right? And investment group is not going to pay you more than the present value of your royalty of your future royalty streams for your catalog that's not a good investment like the only way it's a good investment is if they're giving you less value than what your uh, your royalties are worth right right so if i had a friend who was an artist i'd say take a look at the spreadsheet bring it to a friend who understands irrs put it on an excel spreadsheet and make sure that the imputed rate of return that the buyer is earning is healthy but not predatory yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, let me just ask you this uh, real quick before we uh, go to break here and talk to Evan Bogart about his ex- experiences with ghosts. Um, you know, y- you had brought this up with me on an email, and I, and I want and I figured it was worth some discussion here. Um, in all of this discussion of Donald Passman and his legacy, and and some of the perspectives that he has, and how much he celebrated in this field, uh, I know you've often asked me what makes a good entertainment lawyer or what qualities should artists look for in an entertainment lawyer? And certainly I have my own thoughts on this, but you know, I'm also biased (laughs) given my job title, but um, you know, do do you want to talk a little bit about like from the artist side, like what you're looking for in an entertainment lawyer? So as I think about this, part of it overlaps with what I'm looking for in a lawyer period. I've hired antitrust lawyers, entertainment lawyers, corporate lawyers, litigators. It's just been a big part of my life, sadly, no offense, um, for, for decades. And the first thing I would do is sort of make sure that you understand the psychology of the lawyer that you're hiring. Um, there's three types in, in my experience. If I was forced to count, there's the one who are, you know, flex their muscles and say, I'm the guardian at the gate and let me show you how I'm protecting you. And often those are excessively controversial um, with counterparties and, um, and start 
fights and make you irrelevant or, or, or sort of make you come off as um, excessively mercurial or adversarial. And so you want to avoid certain lawyers that are all about the fight. And then there's the ones who are just too blasé and, and, and sort of say, well, you want to get the deal done, you know, and, and so you should give them this or that's fairly standard and that's no good. The one that you want is the balanced one. The one that knows that he owes you a duty, in a sense, to to protect your interests, but understands that there are certain practical realities to making a deal, whether you're signing an influencer to an artist deal, whether you're doing a 360 deal, a modified 360 deal, or just even doing a remix agreement, for God's sakes. The idea is to accomplish something and to generally protect you in an equitable way. And to find that lawyer who's conscientious and doesn't invest his ego into the situation and doesn't overdo the bit about being the three-headed dog that, that you know, guards the gates of hell, um, <laughs> you know, like that is a rare jewel in any business. And then the other thing I would say is, man, I'll say the obvious, but when you deal with an entertainment lawyer or a real estate lawyer, but we'll stick with entertainment who really has on the ground road warrior experience and has seen that the mistakes, there's nothing like it. Just because you're hiring someone who worked for, you know, Ed Sheeran, that doesn't mean that person's going to take that much interest in you. What you need is a road warrior who handles people like you, where you're not their biggest client and you're not their smallest client. Um, and, and, and who really you're right down their fairway, but who, does it all the time and continue and can tell you 10 stories about how this provision or that provision screwed someone that they know and you should be careful of it and awaken you to those things. So I would say the neurotic road warrior is the is the is the sort of the archetype I'm looking for. I you know I have one guy that's been working for me for, for 20 years and he calls me, he says, I just want to make sure you understand this. I just want to make it and he drives me insane. Okay. I can't even watch a Netflix show without him fucking calling me and saying, Do you understand? But at the end of the day, he really is my guardian. His neurosis mixed with his road warrior experience makes him an absolute diamond in the rough or not even a diamond in the rough, just a diamond. And so that's what I would say. Massive experience, not too controversial and not too blasé. So that's a bit qualitative, but hopefully you see where I'm coming from. No, and all of those things matter a great deal. I, I love what you noted about uh finding that right balance in an entertainment lawyer between uh, somebody who's going to protect you, but also not be a deal killer. And it's, <laughs> that's particularly important in the entertainment industry because once an, once your lawyer becomes a deal killer, you as an artist will ever be forever be branded with, Oh, don't do a deal with that artist. They have a lawyer who kills every deal, who negotiates things to death, who doesn't reply to emails promptly, who doesn't turn things around fast enough. It's not worth the trouble. Let's find somebody else. And so um, having a lawyer that wants to protect you to the death, but also understands that their job is to get the deal done for you is critical. And I think the other thing that's important with lawyers, you know, you talked about experience, experience and knowledge, right? Um, the Donald Passman lesson and, and what he talked about in this interview shows us how fast this industry is changing. And so if your entertainment lawyer is not constantly 
learning about the new technologies, learning about how artists are performing and marketing themselves, are not constantly realizing how the trends in the industry are changing and why that's important for their clients as the artists, um, that's a lawyer that's ultimately doing you a disservice. Like this is a legal uh, profession or this is a particular genre of the law that gets obsolete so fast, right? And lawyers... And, you know, and entertainment lawyers, there are a lot of them who have been around a long time and unlike Donald Passman, aren't learning what they need to learn to stay on top of the industry and they get left behind. And, you know, if you want to get into this business, you have to stay on top of these things. You have to you have to keep reading. You have to talk to your clients and learn about what they're doing. We just 15 seconds because I know we got to move on. I'm not talking about ghosts. I'm no more ghosts, man. I'm I'm selling an entertainment asset right now in California. And the, and the opposing council was so, um, so aggressive and so not knowledgeable about like some modern technological concept, modern legal concepts that we actually stopped the deal. We actually stopped a $200 million deal and said, we don't want to do the deal. if We have to talk to that lawyer. And uh, they got rid of him and they fired him. So you're right. Keeping up, keeping up with, with the, with the modern technology and the modern legal concepts is it's everything. You alienate everyone around you. If you, if you don't. Well, and the only thing spookier than I would say, than a lawyer who kills deals and, and makes, you know, $200 million opportunities disappear are some really good ghost stories. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be joined by, uh, Grammy-winning songwriter, but more importantly, guy who makes great Halloween songs, Evan Kid Bogart, coming up next here on Break the Business. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. Ryan Corelli here with Gideon King. 
when we're just having an absolute blast on all major podcast and live streaming platforms and on Sirius XM 145. Much love to the amazing humans at Slam Radio for giving us a satellite radio home. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week. He is a Grammy-winning songwriter who has co-written iconic songs such as Halo by Beyonce and SOS by Rihanna. But let's be real. We don't care about any of that. We are having him on because of his work as Little Punkin, co-founder of Halloween-obsessed music group Lovecraft. Lovecraft's latest release is Five, a narrative album of fun and spooky hits that tell the story of Skeleton Sam's quest to find his lost love, Serafina. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting Lovecraft.net. We are happy to welcome back Evan Kid Bogart onto Break the Business. Hello, Evan. Hi. How are you? I am so happy to see you again. What, two, yes. two things. One, my my partner in Lovecraft, MNDR, Amanda, is also here. So I want to bring her on too. I just saw yes, that we get yes. a two for one. Okay. So I want to bring MNDR her on. MNDR is here, yes. MNDR. And of course, MNDR like started her career under Mark Ronson, has had a million hits with Flume and a billion other people as well. She's we started Lovecraft together, so I wanted us to be on together to talk about Lovecraft. But Hi. before we <laughs> Before we talk about anything spooky, I want to talk about Don Passman. <laughs> Is that weird? <laughs> okay, the, the Don Passman love fest is not over. What do you got for us? So, first of all, um, there's so many there's so many things you guys talked about that I wanted to talk about. So, what one of the things is we should have brought him on the first segment. So I grew up. So I grew up in basically in Don Passman's house. Like his son David Passman and I were friends, and I was friends with Danny Passman, who's also a lawyer who works at Gang Tire, and um and so like i played dungeons and dragons in that house don pat we used to have like this father-son group we got together and sing kumbaya and don was the leader of it and he'd play guitar like i like don i grew up in don's like so i love i love don i love don um but i wanted to say that because it's funny i have these memories of don as as like the father of my friend and then of course as you grow up and you get into the music industry you realize oh like this isn't just the father of my friend, right? You know, like, it's like funny, like you just don't realize that growing up. Um, but Don's such a great guy and he's, he's so smart. I was curious what you guys, you started saying, what are the big lawyers in, in, in the music industry? And you stopped at Don. And I was curious who you thought the other legendary iconic lawyers were that moved the needle in the music industry. And I was thinking about it myself and I was thinking Grubman, Branca. Like I was trying to think like who else you guys would think are the ones that are like maybe not passman level it hasn't hasn't hit the needle like that but like who else do you think i mean can we call clive davis an entertainment lawyer he is yeah, sure. a you know lawyer i mean yeah yeah okay clive, so clive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. um i mean alan jacoby down here in miami yeah sure he's he's a legend um yeah. You know, uh, I, remember, I was just uh, curious. I was like, I was like, oh, I want to hear what this list is. And then you were like, Passman. And I was like, yeah, I love Passman. What's what's the rest? I want to be. Well, I mean, he, he, I mean, he, he's the king to me. Like he, yeah. he was, you first know, like you, like he, because because he, 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 he was my first love in you know for entertainment lawyers, and he's the reason why I'm here. So he's got something special to me. Yeah. But but Jacoby's important too because uh, when I was 17 years old, I camped out in his office in Miami, Florida until he gave me an internship, just like every day, just showing up and bothering him. You know, you know what I loved about Passman as a, as a kid, like starting out in the business when I was like a kid was when I read his book, I felt like, um, I felt like I understood it and everything else that like when when i was trying to get in it like i felt like i was lost like trying to just get into it you know and i felt like 
he wrote his book in a way that like anyone could understand the music business. And I, and I thought that was really clever because I feel like he could have written it in a way that was just so over everybody's heads. Um, there's a book called um, The Business of Music, which I'm sure you guys know. Uh, it was like, uh, it's not the same. It doesn't, it's the opposite of that. Uh, and I remember trying to read that one. I was like, nope, this is, I'm going to just pass me this book. But, um, but yeah, I, I, didn't mean, I, I didn't mean to jump. I know you, I know we're here to talk about all things spooky, but I just, I just was like, oh my God, we're talking about Dawn and I love Dawn and I grew up with Dawn and I just wanted to say that it was cool. Oh, that's awesome. And my question, my question is, do you still play Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, with Danny. Danny Passman was our dun, was our dungeon master, and then me and David and all of our other friends. And Danny Danny Passman would make up all the stories. Got it. That's amazing. No, I don't. I don't play anymore. But but um, I wish I played. I would LARP it now if I had the chance. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! If there's a, if any, you guys know about any any Dungeons and Dragons LARP, LARPs in LA? I'm I'm super into it. Pumpkin, I would call LARP with you on that. I love okay, if, if one, I need you to record it and we need yeah, to yeah, for sure. um, You've given us way too much amazing stuff to talk about with just like the 15 minutes we have left in the show. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about ghosts, but you've given us like Donald Passman yeah. and like the revelation that you played Dungeons and Dragons with Donald Passman's kids. Yeah. <laughs> awesome um but let's i mean let's let's dive into spooky stuff i mean uh yes i i did see a ghost i have a picture of a ghost wait i can't hear you right, you're on mute i think we have officially lost your mic he's a ghost yeah. ryan no it's not on ryan's our end it's on his cool. end that's what happens when you stream from the hotel room. Yeah. But tell us, tell us, because I can see it and he can nod. Okay. So the um, it's actually a previous guest of yours at her video shoot. Recently, you had ZZ Ward on your show, right? Uh-huh. And it's ZZ Ward's first music video ever. Was she wearing one of her awesome hats? She was wearing one of her awesome hats. Um, she... She um, she shot her first music video ever, a song called "Better Off Dead," in an abandoned abandoned insane asylum in, in Linda Vista in in California, and it um, it actually before it was a before it was an asylum was a hospital for for railroad workers when they first built the railroads, and then became a, a spillover hospital for gang violence in the eighties, and then became an asylum, and then it closed down, and they've been using it to shoot things in like like Walking Dead and all this stuff. Anyway, so she shot her first video. Like, that's where I want to do my music video. <laughs> it, it was. Let me tell you something. If you weren't within the 20 feet where our generators were, it was pitch black. And we shot it from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And we had a B-roll guy there taking photos. And at one point, he went to take photos of ZZ in the chapel. Oof, the I've seen it. And, 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 uh, and behind the chapel, there's nothing. It's just forest for miles. It's nothing. There's no there's – no, there's no, um, structures nothing there's nothing for anything so when we got the b-roll pictures back like two weeks later from the b-roll photo we saw we were rolling through the pictures and we saw this this photo which the first photo okay there's easy awesome hat and we were were like well what what are the lights over her shoulder we couldn't figure out what those could be we were like we were we were like there's nothing out there it was complete forest like and we're on the third floor. So what could be that high that would project lights? And there's no one else in the room with us whatsoever. It was me and the photographer and her. 
So we couldn't figure out what that was. So we zoomed in on it, and this is what we saw. No. What? Come on. Uh... What? And if you look at it, you can Come kind on. Of you Photoshop that. No, nope, swear to God. You can kind of see it. I want to go back. I want to go back. Go back, go back, go back. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I see over her shoulder okay. in that like that really, that really, Okay. You could kind of see like a, the chin like a chin and like like cheekbones and maybe and then those are like a kind of a nose shading and like the eyes are slanted and then maybe there's a hat or some kind of flannel shirt or something. I think it's a railroad worker, personally. But yeah. Yeah. on the third floor? Third floor, nothing out there. That is for sure like uh, some sort of body or something evan it is 9 55 p.m on the east coast as we're recording this i don't need to see this scary crap right now just don't go to an abandoned insane asylum it, by the way, i think it's actually they, they, they knocked it down and turned it into a retirement home now which is oh, yeah, that's great god it just continues they wanted they wanted more people to die in that building is what happened right, there. do you actually do you actually believe in ghosts because i I am here to tell you that even though I'm supposed to be a rational business guy and a musician, I actually believe in ghosts. Well, Do you, I, I, I absolutely I believe in I'm looking at one right I'm now. Not, not, only, not only do I believe that this is a ghost and I believe in yes. ghosts, but, but one of my favorite things to do is if you go to like Reddit or like YouTube and you go down these like holes of toddlers talking <laughs> no. to things that aren't there kids that see things are like waving and they're like, Oh, grandma's in the closet. Grandma said that you shouldn't put something in your tea anymore. And it's like, how would the kid know that? Because like, it was, you know what I mean? Like this, the like, it's the crazy. Oh. No, I hate those. <laughs> scare me so much. Evan, I don't need this right now. Okay. I'm, I'm first of all, producer Lauren, take that freaking ghost off the screen. Okay, I'm okay. Anyway. freaking out. Um, second of all, all right. I'm, 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 taking host privilege here to divert yeah. this yeah. conversation to innocuous Halloween topics. Yeah, Halloween okay? yeah, yeah. So I, I, with Halloween coming up, all right. Yeah. Um, do you, do you host Halloween parties at your house? Like, is that, is like a tradition um, you I do? I don't actually, so growing up, I had my, my mom would host Halloween parties at our house when I was a little kid and we had all the, the, the and that's where I, that's where I first fell in love with it. Um, I have a two and a half year old now. We haven't, we haven't started hosting yet, but our, our house is, beyond decorated like we have 50 bales of hay and like light up pumpkins and giant skeletons and like we are like the house of the neighborhood so on halloween tons of people are coming to our house to get candy we don't have a party inside i will eventually but amanda amanda's been throwing a party at her house with her kids so i mean yeah. and i think that, you know she grew up in that way too so it's like we're paying it forward we're starting to throw parties with our kids go to parties with our kids okay. but but yeah i mean all right. I want to I want to do something with Amanda and Evan here. All right. Yeah. Since you guys are in the Halloween party spirit, and maybe you you either host them or you're about to host them. Uh, yeah. I want to ask you each some rapid fire questions of to test how permissive you are about what sort of people you invite to your Halloween party. All right. Do you you know, do you do you let anybody in or do you require like a certain level of commitment to the holiday? OK, so uh, I'll I'll. Send this first one to Amanda. Amanda, would you okay. invite someone to your Halloween party uh, that is the person that takes them more than 30 seconds to explain their costume to you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Okay. That, so, yeah, that, that level of nuance and dedication is highly welcomed. I'm the decline of print media, obviously. All right, Evan, <laughs> this one's for you, okay? Uh, 
person who has to turn their Halloween costume sideways to fit into your front door. Oh, oh man, that's so funny. I mean, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't hate on a, on a Halloween costume, but I think that's really funny that they have to do that to get into a front to get into your front door. Because like they're <laughs> knocking crap over and yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're probably like they're probably cool if it's an outside party. I think, oh, an, inside, okay. I think an inside party. You're right. There's there's some liability there. That's an important distinction. That's great. All right, uh, Amanda. How about the person who has worn the exact same low effort costume every Oof. Halloween since 2007? That's me. This is so weird. <laughs> That's me. It's me I, too. I'm so. It's me too. I, I'm, always, I'm, oh, I'm, always, yep. I'm always Harry Potter. Yep. Yeah. You're. It's. I would say Where like like by the time. I was. I've, I'll send you a picture. I'll send you a picture for the last fifteen years. Every year. Okay, please and thank you. And, <laughs> yeah, and also I I would argue there's a Harry Potter Easter egg. Evan's wearing nearly every day I've seen you for the past 10 years. Here. Let, let me give this one to Gideon King. All right. It, whoa, there you go. Nice snitch. Uh, it, it, so Gideon King for your Halloween party, uh, are you inviting the person who says they're dressed as Tom Brady, but it's literally just them wearing an old Tom Brady Jersey and a pair of jeans? <laughs> First of all, I reject the question. And here's why. (laughs) I know. I don't have Halloween parties. I stay home, I play guitar, and I wait for it to be over. And secondly, Evan coming off Evan is coming off as the jolly Halloween guy with hay mazes, but that to me is just Jack Nicholson in the shining. That's basically what that is to me. So I know I'm supposed to be nice to the guests, but that's what I'm hearing here. Without an axe. I mean without an axe. Without an axe to grind. Um, the, the, I think that, um, I, I really, you know, I gotta be honest. I don't just to answer when you ask Gideon though, for a second, like, I, I think when somebody comes in and it's really half-assed, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if you tried really hard, but I don't understand it, I appreciate that. At least you were trying to get something across. Um, I went as a Perrier bottle once and no one understood why I was going as a Perrier bottle and, and. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed of it now because of who who I was imitating, but I, I remember this that but, year because I was like, I, there was one year. Yeah, I because because the, the 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 night before Halloween or two nights before Halloween, um, Kanye and Little Peep, or, or I think it was Peep or Pump, one of them went on Peep. Saturday Night Live dressed Pump. as a Perrier bottle and a Fiji bottle. And my wife and I thought it'd be funny if we went to the Halloween parties dressed as a Perrier bottle and a Fiji bottle, and people were like, "What are you guys just water?" Like no one understood. <laughs> what we were. I was like, "No, we're funny, we're punk." And they're like, "Man, Evan's really pretentious." Yeah, it was fun to make them. We made them. All right. Well, um, we got one more here for Amanda. All right, the last last Halloween guest, and it's a twofer. All right, okay. uh, couple wearing a couple's costume who get into an argument within 10 minutes of arriving at your house, and now you have to watch Tinkerbell and Captain Hook yell about picking up Captain Hook's mom from the airport next week. I love that. How do I feel about that? Yeah, would you, like, you're inviting those people to your Halloween party. No, that would be a spooky bummer vibe, and I like to keep it way spooky fun vibes. <laughs> what wrong kind of spooky? What that was costume, though? Whoa. Ooh. <laughs> Mind <laughs> blown. The whole costume was Tinkerbell yeah. and Captain Hook arguing about picking Captain Cook's mama. H- having a domestic argument. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I see. <laughs> I, I, I'm with Amanda. I thought that the costume was like 
couple on the rocks yes. <laughs> who are yeah, dressed up for Halloween and getting event. in a fight at your party. Yes, yes, yes that's if there's an immersive yeah. costume narrative going on, the, I 100% can oh, sign that. They're winning the costume contest at that point. Yeah, love 100%. That. I love that idea yeah. so much. All <laughs> right. I got to ask at least one question about uh, the album. So yeah. We love Lovecraft stuff. Like, we, we listen to it every year. I love every time, like, I'm watching a TV show about Halloween and I hear one of your songs that got synced, and I'm like, oh, there it is. Um, and you, you guys make Halloween so great with your music. And um, I, I'm curious, when, you know, you've been, you've been doing this for years now, and when you started the Lovecraft Project, did you envision that it was going to become as big as it is and that it would take over your life this much? Or was this just meant to be, like, a silly diversion that you do every October? I think, I think we hoped that we could do this forever. I mean, honestly, when we started it, and I don't want to sound kind of like hokey about it, it was because we love Halloween and Halloween music so much, and we just felt like we owed it to the next generation to soundtrack the future of Spooky Seasons. And we felt like, you know, at most of the Halloween music we listened to is 40 years old, and we've been listening to it since we were kids. Even Monster Mash being 70 years old, but everything from, you know, Rockwell and Oingo Boingo and Warren Zevon and, I mean, the, the specials and everything is, you know, decades old. And all of these, you know, Ray Parker Jr., it's, it's just, there's not, there was nothing new and iconic. And so we felt as a group of songwriters, seven of us to start, that we had the ability and the love for Halloween, the understanding of Halloween and horror culture that we should take our talents, <laughs> take our talents to South Beach. No, that we should take our talents and um, and and apply them to writing new Halloween music for the next generation of, of spooky kids and and um, and then people started syncing it in TV shows and in, and in commercials and then Spotify and Apple started playlisting it and then people started asking us to curate music like for Spirit Halloween stores and like things like that and like all of a sudden it was like oh like this could actually be something more than just our fun let's create music for like we could actually turn this into something bigger and now it's it really has taken over our lives like we're at, we're at conventions we're like friends with like the halloween community which is like haunters and 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 like uh immersive theater creators and directors and actors and scare actors and i mean just this whole crazy world of people that we never would have met other than our shared affinity for everything spooky. And um, and they don't care or know what the most of the stuff that we do outside. Or like, care, like which they, is amazing. People come, yeah. to, people come up to your Halloween conventions, they're like, Are you, do you know Lovecraft? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in Lovecraft. They're like, oh my God. And then like down the conversation, like, so what else do you do? Like, they don't, they have <laughs> yeah, no they idea or care who, who we are or anything else or anything. They, they yeah. literally purely love what we do for spooky. Like, it, it, it is really nice because, you know, we have credits from, like, Amy Winehouse, J-Lo, Beyonce, Rihanna, you know, not to name, not to name drop, you know, but, but uh, you know, but they don't care. The point of the story is they absolutely do not care. They care that we did the music for Chucky Season 3's Bumper. Yeah, or, like, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, or, like, yes. like Hocus Pocus 2 last year, right? We had Skeleton Samples and Hocus Pocus 2 that got so much love. Um, mm -hmm. that's the stuff that they care about. I just it's love that there's fun. a generation of people that are learning about you through Lovecraft. And then one day they're looking at your Wikipedia and they're like, Hey, do you know the Lovecraft guys also do songs with Mark Ronson? 
they don't even I don't even think they would care. Like I think they just I think they're more impressed that we did a song with Bruce Campbell or John Cassier, the Crypt Keeper. Like yes. or, or, or Christopher Young, the composer for Hellraiser. Like that stuff is more impressive to them. Like not, you know, I, I don't know. And and honestly, I think one of the the most awesome things, but like I never would expect expect that we would have a spooky brand ambassador character that yeah. is originally we just used for marketing on social media because people there was such a demand to show who are they who are they who are they and i was like well none of us want to be forward facing at all not because of the project just because none of us want to do that right now in our life you know in terms of an artist project so we created like a eddie from you know Iron Maiden meets Rob Halford character named Skeleton Sam. And now he gets hired to go to haunts across America now. Now I'm like touring with him. It's crazy. As a- like people are, people are hiring our made up character from a made up song to show up at their, at their events and take pictures with their people. Yes. I, it's it's and the he, most bizarre thing ever. It's uh, yeah, I'm like managing a skeleton guy dressed in a leather biker outfit and he goes to events and, and people he's famous well, in the community. Well, they die for him. They die. The how DMs. does the skeleton Sam like work in the real world? Is this like an actor you pay and you dress him up? Is it one of you? Am, am I not am I is it sworn to secrecy? No, it's it's actually it's a it's a close friend of ours who's uh, in an immersive theater group that a really popular immersive theater group in LA that we've become close with that we go to all of their events and they're just incredible at what they do. Um, that's that's it. it. <laughs> and, oh, there's and, and there's Skeleton Sam for our live streaming audience. Um, yeah. Okay, you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting Lovecraft.net. That's lvcrft.net. Check out the latest album, folks. It is terrific. We're gonna play a track from it uh, to close out the show here. We are going way over time for radio, but who cares? I'm having way too much fun. Let's close with this real quick. Um, I'd love to ask each of you our final question that we ask all of the folks on the show. We'll ask you first, Amanda. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, you know, outside of Lovecraft, um, I'm the MNDR. I'm a, had a couple record deals. I'm an independent artist and I really built MNDR one fan at a time. And, and um, I have a career based on, on that idea. And, and because of that, I was able to collaborate with, with Mark Ronson and Flume and Evan Bogarts and, and and John Hills and 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 great artists and Killer Mike's etc. And really, that's from being part of a community and participating in a community. And and if you want to, people to care about what you're doing, make yourself part of your music scene and your music community. And we're doing the same thing with Lovecraft. Like, we're, it's one fan at a time, and and they will scream the loudest for you if you put the time in with people. So that is always my biggest advice for independent artists. I dig that. Evan, same question. You need a three-song demo, and no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> full circle of the conversation. 
You, you know, you know what's so funny about the Donald Passman book and how, like, for years the Donald Passman book said that, like, the way to get a record deal is to have like a lawyer, you know, make a three song demo in your in your in your basement and have an entertainment lawyer shop your demo as if any record executive gives a damn what Ryan Carella thinks is good music. Um, I still have artists coming to me like asking to shop their demos. I'm like, you read his book. Uh, well, I will, t- I will tell you this, and I'll give you my answer in two seconds. But I will okay. tell you this. when I first started in the industry, it was in the in the second half of the '90s. I worked at Interscope, and I came up as in the mailroom and in the A and R department under Tom Wally, and learned you know when they had you know No Doubt and Bush and Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails and Helmet and Smash Mouth and Tupac and everyone you could ever think of, and it was an it was an amazing time to be there. And as the up and coming kid in the A and R department, every day. They would get demos in, like press packs in, right? Cassettes. Press kits, yeah. Press in, okay. And the press kits, if they came from Dawn or they came from Paterno or they came from Kim Guggenheim, who just passed away, unfortunately, and they came from these, these lawyers, they were accepted. If they didn't know the lawyers, no joke, trash. Then when they opened them, they would have me take the cassette out, put it on a table with all these other cassettes, and throw the press kit out. Then three or four weeks later, an A&R guy would listen to the cassette. And if he liked it, he'd go, hey, call them and get a press kit. This is the craziest thing ever. <laughs> they literally have to reset an entire new press kit because they didn't want to keep take up. All- anyway, so the 90s, when he, you know, that what he said in that book was a real, that was like, if it didn't come from a reputable lawyer in the 90s and it didn't, and it, it they didn't listen to it. It was, it was but now obviously we're in ancient, I, I sound like I was in, you know, <laughs> Before the turn of last century, um, but, you mentioned Peter Paterno. He's also a legend yeah, in entertainment yeah. lawyers. But, but, so, but so he's great. Um, but I would actually, I'm going to double down on what Amanda said, which is I've watched the power of community um, build build careers out of nothing, and that and that goes and that goes for. Um, whether you're doing it the old school way, which I still love, which is hitting the road and making making a, a name for yourself, building yourself regionally, locally, and then jumping on, on a tour and you know supporting somebody and doing that, and that goes you know that goes same for that. Still, it still makes sense to go out there to the merch booth after your show, go meet people, go talk to people, go tell people your story, all that stuff, right? But it, all that stuff happens now in Discord Discord channels. All that stuff happens now between TikTok creators and creator meetups, influencer meetups, like all that stuff happens in different ways as well now. And it's, it is really all community driven. I feel like the power of community is like a rising tide lifts all ships. If you pick the right community, one person goes, the whole community goes. And, and we watch it time and time again, where these like crews of genres and subgenres pop and these new sounds pop, you know, new, new versions of, of, you know, mix of you know trap jazz and like weird things that get mixed together because these communities are doing it and they all come up at the same time and and um it's been really exciting i think it's been kind of exciting to see all this new music come out because of this community building so i'll double down community build community love it and grateful for the community that we have here this week our thanks to evan bogart amanda warner gideon king producer lauren and all of you viewers and listeners for making this week's episode so special thank you all for checking out break the business we're going to close with every day is halloween by lovecraft here and we'll see you next week on break the business thank you this song's great thank you
Saw a witch in the sky. Zombies in the dead of the night. Everywhere, flickering lights. Spooky, scary skeletons, and it's so need to light. There's no way to find.